Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two shows a week. This is the free one. And every Monday, there is a second bonus episode just for patrons. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I am here with my two co-hosts, Artie Vierkant. Hello. And Jules Gilpeterson. Hello. And the three of us are going to discuss the ongoing privatization of the COVID response. And most importantly, talking about the Biden administration's plans for vaccines and therapeutics and how it's become a really important example of what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls organized abandonment, which is a deliberate systemic approach by those in power to withdraw support and resources from certain groups or communities that's then propped up and justified by the illusion of choice. And today, the day this episode airs, is exactly one week from the end of the Federal Public Health Emergency Declaration, which is May 11th. And unfortunately, this is just the beginning. Longtime listeners of Death Panel have heard us talk about the transition of COVID to the private market in the U.S. probably dozens of times over the last three years now. And we've warned over and over that this is going to further destabilize access to even the bare minimum tools that we have left. And we can be sure that the transition will reduce access and uptake of vaccines and therapeutics, which, let's be honest, right now is not something that we're like stellar or excelling at (laughs) in the United States. But the reason why we know that for sure is the concept that we mention a lot on this show that we'll get a chance to dig into a bit today called administrative burdens. And this matters because, you know, the widespread availability of tools, the vaccines and therapeutics for people sick at home, like not in the hospital, like Paxlovid, have been the primary justification for ending all of the other layered protections. And part of what we're going to talk about today is how what is going on here is, you know, an example of administrative burden that we're seeing develop in real time, but that basically this is going to, without a doubt, make all of these tools that have justified reopening (laughs) even harder to access. Mm. And over and over, you know, we've been promised further details of the Biden administration's plan for how exactly it's going to maintain access to COVID treatments for the uninsured. And it's been pretty. Well, now we have them. Yes. And this week we did receive their answer. And to quote directly from HHS, the new plan is what they are calling a, quote, unique $1.1 billion public-private partnership (laughs) that's going to help maintain access to COVID-19 care for uninsured individuals. And we're definitely going to close read some of this a little (laughs) later. But, you know, today we're going to be talking about Biden's quote-unquote plan to ensure that the uninsured have access to the necessary tools. And You know, we're going to get into questions like, will this plan actually do anything? How bad is it going to be? Yeah. (laughs) What does this add to what we already know about the commercialization Mm. of vaccines and therapeutics? And really, what the fuck are they even promising? Yeah, I think the way that you set it up from the beginning is really important because really this back to normal, the whole back to normal situation is predicated on everyone having access to like free access to vaccines and Paxlovid, right? I mean, even in 
there was that big interview with Anthony Fauci that uh, David Walls Wells did. And in that even he said, quote, the the most underrated part of our response has been show me a person who's vaccinated, got infected, taken Paxlovid and died. I can't find anybody, unquote. And we've obviously <sighs> heard a lot of language like that from them. But, you know, with us just being one week away from the end of the public health emergency, you know, now the long awaited plan is here. So before we get into the details of what is in the plan and our criticisms of it, I think it is important just to do a really quick recap. So, you know, as B mentioned, we've been talking about the end of the public health emergency, what that would mean, um, and about the end of the public health emergency as part of the broader phenomenon that we've called the sociological production of the end of the pandemic. And these last few months have been, I think, really defined by the fact that like these these last few months of that process, rather, have been really defined, I think, by the fact that despite the fact that the pandemic remains ongoing, the Biden administration have been slowly assembling the final pieces of policy that will allow them to essentially have fully washed their hands of COVID by the end of this year and by extension before 2024 when Biden runs again. I'm sorry, I'm realizing now that washing your hands of the pandemic is a slightly <laughs> ironic framing. But anyway, I'm right. here for it. <laughs> to, to recap some of the broad strokes of that, though, really quick, for instance, in recent episodes, we've talked about how in December, Democrats put language in the government's end of year spending bill, stipulating that continuous Medicaid enrollment would no longer be tied to the date of the end of the public health emergency, meaning Medicaid redeterminations resumed April 1st, which in turn is likely to lead to as many as 22 million people becoming uninsured over the next year, um, 14.7 million adults and 7.3 million people under 19. And already we've started to see like the impacts of Medicaid redeterminations in the last month that's become this chaotic cascade of like messy, error-filled, confusing Medicaid redetermination mailings. There have been a lot of reporting mm. on this. There was a great example of a Florida family on Medicaid who have a child who is undergoing cancer treatment and had to spend over six hours on the phone just to basically figure out from one week to the next if their child was still going to qualify Jesus. for Medicaid. And this is, mm. you know, a, a child who is mid-treatment for cancer. Right. 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 But so as we talked about, this whole thing had a secondary, like this decoupling of the Medicaid redeterminations from the date, from the end date of the public health emergency had this secondary effect, which was it sort of allowed the administration to dodge the association between the end of the public health emergency and mm -hmm. the bad thing, you know, mm -hmm. people losing insurance. Um, you know, it sort of allowed them to, if you will, avoid the headline Biden administration sets end date for public health emergency, comma, imperiling health coverage for millions. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, which we might have been able to see if Democrats haven't done hadn't done this before. And what they didn't dodge so well is what we're going to talk about, basically, which is, you know, as soon as they announced the May 11th date for the end of the public health emergency, we and others started pointing out that we now knew, you know, when exactly the major first shifts towards COVID commercialization was going to take place, um, which resulted in this sort of scramble from the administration to say, like, no, actually, you know, we're going to qualify a policy distinction that we hadn't really done the groundwork to earn, <laughs> I suppose, uh, which is to say, actually, you know, you, you have to think about the public health emergency end date as completely untethered from the end of COVID vaccine and therapeutics being free, because the end of COVID vaccines and therapeutics being free is actually tied to uh, when the existing stockpile of ones we already bought ran out. And therefore, they're only just sort of free until supplies last, which is uh, end date 
question mark, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about this in an episode called A Public Health Emergency While Supplies Last. But anyway, this episode isn't about that. Um, so, you know, go back to that episode if you want to want to hear about that but in any case we had this big sticking point right that was all pretty obvious all of a sudden uh the biden administration and democrats had simultaneously expanded the pool of people who we expect to be uninsured this year by as many as 22 million people um given the fact that you know the uninsured rate in recent years has been somewhere between 24 and 27 million people that's almost doubling Mm -hmm. the amount of fucking Mm -hmm. people who are uninsured in this country it was just a ridiculous event So you're expanding the pool of people who are uninsured while at the same time laying the groundwork for not just therapeutics like Paxlovid, but the fucking vaccines to no longer be free for uninsured people and to ward off at the sort of at the last minute to ward off criticism. um, I'll just read what uh, what Ashish Jha said at the moment, for example. Um, So January 31st, 2023 on Twitter, Ashish Jha promised the following, which is the promise fulfilled in these plans that we're going to be talking about today. So uh, we're not fulfilled, really. But, you know, the, the promise promised. <laughs> Sorry, that's <laughs> The weird. promise addressed. The, yeah, the, the promise addressed in the uh, plans we're going to talk about today. Uh, Ashish Jha, quote, We are committed to ensuring that uninsured Americans continue to face as few financial barriers as possible. Already a little wriggly language there. Mm-hmm. Um, as few financial barriers as possible to access vaccines, treatments, and tests. So over the upcoming months, you'll see plans rolled out. Plans where ensuring access is a key priority. Our healthcare system is complicated and leaves too many behind. We are committed to ensuring that when it comes to COVID vaccines and treatments, no one is left behind. Unquote. And I wanted to just start with that. I know that's a big set up but i wanted to just start with that because as you'll see from what we're about to talk about they are getting ready to leave a bunch of people behind um and no amount of rhetoric will change that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i really appreciate the way that you sort of laid that out Artie, because i think it's easy to forget sort of how effective also this decoupling process was of splitting Medicaid's redetermination window and the end of this additional federal funding off from the end of the public health emergency. But still, as we have this kind of deadline looming, the best promises that we have really in terms of what's going to be done to this now even larger portion of uninsured people, because I mean, that's the thing they're really trying to avoid, right, is the Mm -hmm. fact that there could be coverage of this that says all of these people are going to be kicked off of their insurance, many of whom still deserve to be on the insurance and still qualify, but who will go through through redeterminations because this is how Medicaid works, because Medicaid controls costs through imposing churn on beneficiaries and that Mm. that has really negative downstream health consequences that have been documented and studied to the ends of the earth. And we know these things very clearly, right? So then you couple that with the fact that, you know, their plan for getting uninsured, that that new larger group of uninsured people access to the tools is a coupon program and a public-private partnership. Like, I mean, yeah, I know why it was such a priority to sort of decouple these two events within the conversation as much as you could, because it's indefensible, right? Especially in the context of the removal of mask mandates in hospitals and the end mm-hmm. of access to testing and all sorts of other ways that this is this is sort of transforming into our era of invisible COVID during privatization. Mm-hmm. But I think this point of like, 
this is this is really important. This is this is one of the last holdouts. This is one of the last things preventing us from actually sort of transitioning into that sociologically produced normal, mm. right? The idea that something like cost sharing or administrative burdens would be paused. That is yeah. that is something that like if it were to continue forward, it would be difficult to kind of reconcile this desire yeah. for producing a normal society. It sets such an important precedent and because, that's why they yeah. want to get rid of it, I think, in part. Yeah. yeah. And it's just I want to make so clear for listeners who maybe like sort of don't know a lot about administrative burdens or who haven't themselves um, had to go through a lot of these paperwork processes. So most people have, which we can get into, but like this is the normal quote unquote state of existence. Mm-hmm. It would be incredibly bizarre to have public programs so broadly accessible without administrative burdens. It's incredibly abnormal to have something like the COVID vaccines free to everyone in the United States. And that's not to say that there are no burdens before, but there most of them were most of the traditional burdens of the for-profit American healthcare system were not as present. Specific, yes, specifically yeah. for the vaccines, mm-hmm. especially. Yes, yeah, exactly. No, I think it's just like this feels like such a a pivotal moment in some ways, even though, you know, I appreciate how, how sort of well prepared we are, you know, to sort of see this moment in context. But it's that sort of strange feedback loop where on the one hand, let's say the political economy of U.S. private healthcare, you know, has made this strange moment of exception where there was some lessening of these administrative burdens and some publicly available health care, you know, has made it sort of imperative to to walk that back as fast as possible, regardless of the actual, you know, situation with the pandemic. But then there's this kind of flip side where the management and the privatization of the pandemic also serves a purpose, a feedback purpose mm-hmm. in entrenching and advancing, you know, the privatization and the private logic of American healthcare to new levels of extremism. You know, just I just still continue to feel like this pit in my stomach about that sheer number of people, you know, that we're going to see become uninsured. It's just a massive historical event to to take healthcare away from so many people. So yeah, this feels like a really kind of important moment to to see in that context, even if a lot of the the rhetoric kind of sounds familiar or, you know, phrases like unique 1.1 billion public private partnership are sort of funny in part because like, yeah, what's unique about that? Like I every everyone living in this country. It's just the state. Yeah, like the state <laughs> Yeah, Loves it's them public being private. Like, this is not unique. Yeah, it's like them having like building in defensibility for being like, no, it's not just an, a regular old average uh, right. private <laughs> partnership like uh, all of you know and fucking hate. It's a unique one. It's, it's really a new special. one. Well, actually, let's get into the details of it because yeah. I do think it is rather unique. Um, and I'm actually really <laughs> yeah. surprised. Uh, we'll, we'll get into it. But I'm actually, I would say I was expecting the moment that Ashish Jha and the whole Biden administration obviously came out and promised, we will have plans for mm-hmm. what to do about the uninsured. I obviously, my expectations were at the floor, but it has gone <laughs> I mean, they have surpassed my already low expectations, uh, I suppose. I mean, you know, surpassed by going under, if -hmm. that makes sense. Um, Also, remind me later in the conversation, just both of you, like, I I would love to return to this point of how exceptional actually this was in the first place and Mm -hmm. why Mm -hmm. they're trying to sweep it under the rug because I I feel like this is a really important component of it. But before we get bogged down in the far past, let's talk about 
what's going on right now and what's just been proposed. So on April 18th, HHS released a fact sheet on uh, what they intend to do on, you know, their plan to, in Ashish Jha's words, you know, ensure that uninsured Americans face as few financial barriers as possible to access vaccines. So uh, most of what we're going to be referring to as we were reviewing this plan is through HHS's press document here, which is again from April 18th and called HHS announces HHS bridge access program for COVID-19 vaccines and treatments to maintain access to COVID-19 care for the uninsured. So this plan has two components. The first one I'm going to try and summarize. And the second part, the second component of the plan, I would like us to do a close read on because the second part especially is this kind of thing where I feel like your eyes could sort of glaze over if you're reading the language (laughs) um, and you could be like, oh yeah, cool. Seems like they're going to preserve free vaccines, right? That's what they just said. Well, no, not exactly. So the the two components, the first component is one I'm going to summarize. Basically in the first component of the plan, the CDC promises that it will purchase vaccines and distribute them to local health departments and health centers around the country. Um, on the one hand, you know, sure. Yeah, good. This is Mm -hmm. good. You know, this is a good thing for sure. Um, this is definitely a good bare minimum thing for them to do. The only problem with this, and this does get basically equal billing with the other component of the plan. So I just wanted to, you know, point this out about the, the first component. The only problem with the general first component of the plan, which kind of makes it look a little more like they're going to continue to be buying and providing those vaccines really broadly across the United States is that, you know, as we all know, America's public health infrastructure is not great. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I'm happy that they're going to be getting these resources for sure that like health departments and health centers are going to be getting these resources. That's important. We should be building those, you know, we should be building that infrastructure out and allowing them to have this be a main point of people getting vaccines and therapeutics like Paxlovid. But Unfortunately, part of the problem with this is if you actually look at, you know, where people get their shots, even I'm sure for listeners, if you think about where did you get your most recent shot or your booster or whatever, probably got it at a pharmacy. And in fact, you know, two thirds fully in the U.S., two thirds of COVID vaccines have been administered at private pharmacies. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I say that, I think it's important to note it's not like, okay, so one the the one third of remaining COVID vaccines, it's not like, um, okay, well, you know, you're still talking about a third of them will be provided by CMS. Um, the, the last third, the remaining third, I couldn't find the exact breakdown of this. I don't know if this data set exists. Um, hit me up if If you know, if you've seen those data, yeah, if you've seen this data, uh, shoot me a message or something on Twitter. But I asked a few of our, you know, death panel friends of the show about this, and we basically couldn't find an exact data set for this representative nationally, at least. But, you know, if you look at that third, that remaining one third of, um, vaccine administration, it's not just at health centers and the types of places that the Biden administration is saying that they're going to have the CDC purchase for these, you know, local health departments and health centers. Um, It's also, you know, that third is split between like skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes, um, Mm -hmm. hospitals and other uh, and other places where you get healthcare, like primary care providers. Right. So that last third is quite fragmented. And you're talking about a route to, you know, it's good for there to be a route to access there. But you're talking about what is unfortunately in the in the, 
you know, broad scheme of things, I think a small, unfortunately, I think like a pretty minority subset of how vaccines are actually going to be administered. Well, and part of that is because some of our social safety net organizations for providing care that they're going to be sending things to, like something called the Health Resources Services Administration or HRSAs, Mm -hmm. are so narrow to begin with. They only serve very small populations. Mm -hmm. It's like only people with HIV who are or people who are pregnant or people who um, have young children and are the primary caregiver of a young child plus that Mm -hmm. child. It's not like, oh, This is just, oh, we're sending this out to this huge network of clinics that are across America for giving healthcare to poor people. It makes people think that something like that exists. And that is not the case. This is a bare bones, last mile healthcare delivery uh, organization that we're going to be throwing some vaccines at, but which in and of itself, none of these places, whether it's the local public health department or an HRSA, They don't have the fucking resources to do their regular job. So they're just throwing vaccines at them and without giving the corresponding resources or expanding the network. Well, even if they do give them resources, whatever they're working with to begin with is not enough. And it does not meet the needs of the population that has been abandoned. But in the minds of people with political power, whose opinions on these things do matter, whose, you know, pressure matters and who people listen to. They're like, oh, well, poor people, they have these little things. They're fine. They have those clinics. Okay, that's good. We don't need to worry about the poor people. Oh, they're kicking people off Medicaid, but we have all these little clinics everywhere for them. Everything's okay. Like, it's all good. And that's why this shit is so insidious, because it's a rhetorical device. You can hear, oh, access to affordable care and think people have the care that they need. And that does not mean that people have the care that they need. It means that theoretically... There is access to care that is theoretically affordable, but it doesn't mean that if you need care, you have it. Right. So this is all to say, you know, if you're if you're listening to this so far and you're like, oh, well, so it sounds like you're just going to be nitpicking or whatever. <laughs> trust me, that's just the first component. The first component we have nitpicks about. Uh, and I'm, and the most important nitpick is the scale of the intervention that they're talking about is not something that I would say is uh, like that doesn't qualify as a plan that resolves the problem that everyone's upset about. Right. Um, so let's get into the second component. And for this, I think the the best way to do it is just first, uh, I'm going to say how they spell it out in the document, and then we're going to explain what they mean by this, because um, this is the one that gets really slippery. So they say, second, second component, create a novel funded partnership with pharmacy chains that enable them to continue offering free COVID-19 vaccination and treatments to the uninsured through their network or retail locations, as has been done during the public health emergency. So if your eyes glazed over already, you know, it sounds good so far, uh, enable them to continue offering these quote unquote, as has been done, (sighs) right? Well, wait for the next part. (laughs) Quote, pharmacies have been a critical partner in the administration's response to COVID-19 and a critical access point for millions of Americans in receiving convenient and timely vaccines, treatments, and tests. This program, the one that they're proposing, will also leverage public commitments by drug manufacturers to provide vaccines and treatments, such as Paxlovid, free of charge for the uninsured. During the 2022-2023 season, available data show that more than two-thirds of adult COVID vaccinations were administered at pharmacies. That's, oh, right, I forgot to mention that two-thirds figure. I didn't just go looking for that. They give that up in the in the document itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
this is this is one of those things that's very frustrating, right? Because yeah. what's basically being proposed here, we're being told, is a novel partnership that is going to replicate the kind of mixed reception test to treat program, mm -hmm. essentially. You know, it's it's clear how sort of manipulative some of these framings are in terms of really the point of these programs and the way they're being communicated about is not about communicating to the people who are going to need to access the programs, right? Like they, that's very clear. It's about communicating to people who are looking for an answer to the question of what are you going to do about uninsured people? And the, the attempt here is to sort of frame this as really broad, Right. It's really broad, really comprehensive. This is really accessible. Any pharmacy. Right. And, and that's kind of how we saw the response to things like pressure to send out free masks. They were like, we're sending it to pharmacy partners. We're sending it here. We're sending it there. You know, I tried for a month. I called every single pharmacy in our local area to be like, do you have free masks? Nope, call a different pharmacy. Well, Do you have yeah. free masks? The main thing I think that that policy resulted in was every pharmacy in the U.S. having that like printed out eight and a half by 11 piece of paper that said we have no government <laughs> have masks no mask. here. Well, yeah. well, well, this is actually a really good example also of an, an administrative burden that's an informal one, right? Because actually mm -hmm. that process that we're asking people to do, right? If we're saying, oh, you know, we're, we're going to like stand up this, this novel breakthrough, unique, very nice new program that's going to replicate testing to treat and give uninsured people vaccines, what we're saying is that we're imposing an informal administrative burden on that population where they're going to have to call around and be like, are you one of the partners that has free vaccines? Oh, right. no, not this pharmacy. Are you one of the partners that has right. free vaccines? Are you one of the partners right. that, that has I mean, free that's vaccines? Just the first step. Yeah, and that is sure. one of the most fundamental ways that administrative burdens actually exist in our lives. It's not in the formal paperwork process, but in shit like this, where the Biden administration says, you have the tools. If you get COVID, make a plan. Go to CDC.gov and look at this list of places that you can then Google. And then if you call these places, maybe some of them have the things that you might need. And oh, by the way, you have 24 hours, 48 hours to get Paxlovid before it's not really helpful anymore. Good luck. Go back to work. Smile. Yeah. Take that mask off. That's basically the situation that we're looking at right now. Well, and again, let, let's fulfill our promise to close read here because... Um, yeah. What is meant exactly by, quote, the program will leverage public commitments yeah. by drug manufacturers? Unquote. That was my question. I'm, I'm going to let me spell this part out because this is really important to understand from the jump for the rest of the uh, <laughs> policy as we're going to yeah. go, go through it, which is, you know, this sounds like the whole the whole thing so far sounds like they're saying vaccines will be will continue to be free at a pharmacy full stop for uninsured people. What they're actually saying is throughout this, and maybe I'll just like, I'll, I can do a quick rundown even of like what we're sort of about to hear. What they're saying is HHS's plan is that they will pay the pharmacies to administer the shots so long as Pfizer and Moderna provide the vaccines for free. So what they're referring to when they say leverage public commitments by drug manufacturers, those public commitments are straight up what there's what they are referring to is the fact that both Pfizer and Moderna have said that they will create what are called patient assistance programs to facilitate people getting people who are uninsured being able to get vaccines and that basically as you'll see when I'll, I'll you know a little bit read some more of you know what this fact sheet portends for us with the, what they're presenting here but basically what sort of follows 
is you could think of it as publicly elbowing the pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. and saying like, hey, you said you're going to do this, right? Our whole yeah. plan falls apart if you don't do this. So uh, we expect that you do this. But anyway, all of that is to say the really important thing, though, I think maybe even before we you know, proceed is just like a patient assistance program is not making these free Mm-mm. for uninsured people. A patient right. assistance program literally means we will create a program that will basically means test people's ability to get these things and whether you know whether someone as with any means testing program as we've talked about with medicaid whether someone qualifies for this or not it all sort of depends it depends these programs will ultimately depend on two things one well three things i guess one the system working at all two (laughs) people qualifying for it to be able to get it three people not just qualifying for it but filling out the right paperwork and going through Mm -hmm. the right hoops having the time and having the time to go through the hoops yeah. You know, you hear patient assistance program and you think, oh, well, there you go. Like, you're good to go. But even if there was no means testing, let's say, let's say if they're like anyone can apply, you don't even have to prove that you don't have insurance, but you have to apply. You mm-hmm. have to get the coupon. Right. Still a fucking administrative burden. Right. This is still going to reduce access. And we know this. We have decades. We have so much overwhelming, like dry and stuffy policy research trying to figure out just exactly the right way to impose administrative burdens without making people so miserable that they hate the fucking government as a result. (laughs) And they realize, oh, any kind of little tiny bit of administrative burden reduces the use of this thing. And people may be entitled to it. They may qualify. There may be zero means testing. But you give them a coupon form that they have to fill out in order to access it, and you will lose people immediately. This was part of the reason and part of the conversation in terms of vaccine equity in the very beginning of COVID, Mm -hmm. where the whole point of sort of standing up all of these very militaristic vaccine centers was that you just wanted to make a place so people can walk in because you needed to get as many people vaccinated as possible to try and achieve herd immunity, something which we have completely abandoned as a strategy. So it's no longer a priority for them to get unvaccinated people vaccinated. The pandemic of the unvaccinated line was incredibly successful. And I think as a result, it politically deprioritized actually making sure that uninsured people are going to continue to have access to the vaccine. And but like the plan is that you've got the vaccine, you've got Paxlovid for when you get it. We should expect to get it a couple times a year. And like masking optional is kind of like the landscape that they're laying out. So then when you kick a bunch of people off of Medicaid arbitrarily, put them in this position where they have the administrative burdens required to re-enroll in Medicaid and prove that they still deserve to be in Medicaid. And maybe they're a parent of a child going through cancer treatment and they have way better fucking things to worry about than recertifying their kids Medicaid, but they're going to have to do that. Are they going to prioritize filling out the paperwork to make sure they're going to be able to get vaccinated against COVID when they do the patient assistance program? They might not have insurance. They might be in a state where like only young kids who are poor get Medicaid because there are some states that have not expanded Medicaid in the United States where There are adults, childless adults do not qualify in some capacity. Mm -hmm. So we have this whole landscape now where on the surface, if you don't look closely and you, you really don't peel anything back, it appears 
that there is an answer to the the sort of problem created by privatizing the COVID response. But actually, if you just look at it for more than one second, it becomes immediately clear that not only is it kind of vague and relying on basically a handshake promise that sort of insurance companies are going to do a good job negotiating no cost sharing and that these pharmaceutical companies are going to stand up these patient assistance programs in ways that try and, you know, deliberately make sure that people can access the drugs and not in a way that tries to reduce the cost burden that they have a pay yeah. for drugs that, you know, people can't afford. Right. And and we have no guarantee on this. And it even seems like the Biden administration is completely in the dark about the details of the patient assistance programs. Mm-hmm. It's all they're just taking it instead, all on the good faith and credit of literally one of the most loathsome industries in the entire world Mm -hmm. like everyone hates any for-profit healthcare company whether that is pharmacy like you know quote-unquote big pharma or whether that is your health insurance company which again no one trusts or likes and yet uh you know to your point b let's continue the close read here i suppose um so right after this they say um so you know if you don't believe us before that when we say like leveraging the public and private commitments, what they mean is these patient assistance programs, let them basically just spell it out for you a little bit more clearly. So, quote, while COVID-19 vaccine manufacturers have committed to provide vaccines at no cost for the uninsured, thus far, the details of how this commitment would be fulfilled has not been fully clear. Which just to just as a sidebar, it actually has been relatively clear. It's <laughs> that they said that there's going to be a patient assistance program the details of those patient assistance programs, however, and the hoops that people will have to jump through have not been made clear. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, you know, I'll give it to them on that. But uh, in, in any case, they then say, quote, in announcing the program, HHS aims to support that commitment from manufacturers from, you know, Pfizer and Moderna and to ensure that the pharmacy setting remains a place of access for the uninsured. Specifically, the program will provide a per-dose payment to pharmacies in order to facilitate the administration of COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. In other words, they will pay them to give the shot, not for the shot. They will not be buying the shot and giving it. They will be relying on these patient assistance programs. Uh, As they say, (laughs) the sentence actually continues facilitate the administration of any COVID-19 vaccines and treatments at pharmacies that will be made available relying on manufacturers' public and private commitments to provide COVID-19 vaccines. They go on to say, in return for alleviating manufacturers of this administrative burden, hilarious that they use that term, (laughs) and the expense of working directly with pharmacies, they're talking about the the cost of administering the shot, HHS expects, expects, not requires, not not anything more than a handshake. HHS expects that manufacturers ensure vaccines will be made readily available. So this is, you know, as I mean, just kind of to B's point, it's not even like there is a handshake agreement. It's just like they kind of winked at each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like not even an agreement. It's like, a, well, yeah, you're going to. You, you, I mean, I know you guys are bad, but you're going to do the right thing, right? Definitely. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Expect you know my expectations of you. It feels it's, <laughs> it's. I mean, I, you know, I know the 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 rhetoric of this is, or the writing of it is not necessarily the point, but it is. It does really recall sort of um, a parent being like, "Well, you know my expectations of you, yeah. and at most, I could only ever be disappointed." 
I'm, I'm sure that they're obviously they're doing these patient assistance programs. How many people are able to qualify for them, you know, is a still a huge question mark. But in terms of, yeah. again, if the if the litmus test that we have here is that the federal government has said, well, there's going to be a plan for the uninsured. Right. And now they're coming out with this plan and they're basically saying our plan for the uninsured is to rely on the goodwill of pharmaceutical companies to continue those patient assistance programs throughout the future, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like in, I mean, they say that the details of this plan, you know, give them a runway on this until the end of 2024, mm-hmm. which, you know, to me sounds more like they have a way of basically just saying, we don't have to worry about this politically until after the next election. Yes. But like, okay, so let's say that they have a handshake agreement from Pfizer and Moderna to do even a very low burden, very low administrative burden patient assistance program for the vaccines and for stuff like Paxlovid. Like, okay, still people, as you as we've been talking about, still this the existence of that burden is going to turn people away Mm -hmm. and still, okay, what happens after this is clearly not going to not be a problem then. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that. Like I, I'm sometimes loathe to to try and read political optics into these sorts of documents, but it does feel, you know, not coincidental to me. Um, and also like, for example, not to preempt, but the next point uh, in this cascade of bullet points is that under these agreements, quote, pharmacies will also be eligible for one time base payments for each site targeting areas with low rates of access and low rates of vaccination. And so, of course, yes, it would make sense to, to, to be thoughtful and proactive about, you know, different places in the country with particularly poor access or very low rates. But the notion that a one-time payment uh, is like, I, I just think that that actually is quite revelatory, right? That there's a mm-hmm. sort of sense of, we're creating a permanent infrastructure sort of asterisk till the end of 2024, but also right. <laughs> only one, like, here's a little itty bitty, um, here's a little advance for you to get going and then that's it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I just think the sort of handoff, right? If, we're, if part of what we're seeing here is a kind of, um, yeah, a gesture towards how public money will be used to kind of hand off, right? And that's where the, the incredible juicy irony of the use of phrase administrative burden to describe the difficulty of drug companies uh, in and, and their incredible graciousness comes into play. But just this kind of sense of sort of, you know, not, it's not just a handshake, right? It's also like handy, you know, there's, I don't know, this is a bad metaphor, people, but like, you know, there's there's some there's some 20s crumpled up in the hand and you're, you know, shaking the hand and <laughs> handing the money over and you give the little wink and then it's like, cool, government is turning around. Um, but just that one-time payment, uh, I just found that to be a very interesting uh, little, little piece, uh, a little piece of information that they embed in this very long list where otherwise the kind of refrain that you've been sharing with us already is like, how many times have they mentioned over and over again, this, this sense of, well, of course, these, these manufacturers have said something in public. So that's good. We'll just keep saying that over and over again. And then some of the details are kind of just buried in like this and they are much, even much more s- they're even smaller than that vague public agreement thing that you know mm-hmm. Moderna and Pfizer have made. Yeah, I was talking to someone who runs a, a rural pharmacy, and mm. 
is the only person that the pharmacy can afford to pay to staff the pharmacy. So like they're the only employee, they're the pharmacist. They used to have two other people working with them, but since the last year of the pandemic, it's only been them. So the hours are are severely reduced that the pharmacy is available. And I said, mm. like, is there anything in this plan that gives you peace of mind at all? You know, I want to make sure I'm not like coming in so hardline negative if you're like, oh, this is really, really important, actually. Like, is there anything I'm missing here? And they go, uh, specifically about this this point of the one-time payment. They're like, it's as insulting as like when you work as like a waiter or something and some rich fuck tells you keep the change on like an $18 bill when they leave like a 20 on the table. Yeah. Like it's, it's that kind of like entitled like throwing money at this you know, small rural pharmacy for providing this kind of backstop last mile uh, vaccination coverage doesn't do shit to alter this guy's working conditions or actually change like the landscape of like the vaccination services that he's going to be able to offer the people in that area. What is going to happen mm. is like the company that he works for will <laughs> choose how they're going to sort of invest that probably in like more surveillance within the pharmacy or they've used in the past like money from the federal government um, for, you know, sort of COVID upgrades to like install like you know, more monitoring software on the computers and, you know, stronger cameras and these kinds of things that we've even seen just we've even seen this within like state and local governments and, and the Biden administration being like, yeah, spend that COVID funding on like building up the security state, yeah. like finding more, you know, yeah. police equipment. And and so, you know, we hear, oh, they're going to get this one time payment. I think it's very telling that, you you know, if you talk to someone actually in that situation who this is supposed to be like. Uh, some sort of regulatory move that's going to help meet the the needs of the specific pressure point within the current landscape mm. of care. And for them to go, this is fucking insulting, I think is really is really telling. And it's not just this one pharmacist, too, that I spoke to that had this reaction. I talked to two or three other people who are in similar situations who are like, I don't know how any of this is going to do anything except for make my job so much fucking mm. harder yeah, and oh, so that's... much more unpleasant. That's so important. I mean, I just think because there are, and this is not just speculative on your part, right? There there are a number of expectations for pharmacies outlined in this part of the proposed new policy. And, you know, it's, it seems to be like, yeah, that, that the money being provided, if we're just imagining, again, this rural pharmacy, right? And first of all, we're already conceding that a rural pharmacy is meant to be the primary public health infrastructure in that particular region. Well, you know, what would actually improve, you know, questions of access or what would actually just make that whole process work better? Prob I'm guessing more pharmacists, you know, but um, but but this kind of, you know, payment structure clearly isn't earmarked to that in any particular way. And although it's difficult to even know what kind of numbers we're talking about, what kind of money we're talking about, it's presumably not enough for any of that. But then, you know, this program itself includes expectations for pharmacies to, quote, ensure appropriate oversight, including via patient attestations regarding lack of insurance coverage and 
by providing CDC with periodic facility level data at the direction of CDC. But pharmacies are also, quote, expected to conduct outreach regarding the availability of the COVID-19 vaccine, including through community partnerships with a focus on underserved populations. Again, those, you know, well, that second one sounds, you know, pretty decent to me. The first one sounds more like, you know, administrative burden slash surveillance. But again, these are also, that's, those are labor hours that, right. that are just be, you know, kind of frankly expected again, without any sense of who's, you know, not just who's paying for this, right. But just kind of question of if we're thinking about this labor from an equity standpoint, or even just from an efficacy outcome standpoint, this is, you know, producing data <laughs> yeah. for the CDC to claim efficacy, uh, but it's not actually, you know, it, it just doesn't seem to me like it's investing anything in, even like a private rural pharmacy. And obviously this means that the large chains, the CVSs and Walgreens and Rite Aids are going to be more likely, you know, to, to be able to move, you know, money around to, to pay for that kind of data production um, and maybe are the ones already doing quote unquote outreach, right? And so this just seems like it's going to compound, you know, existing inequities rather than do anything to address oh, yeah. them. But it has the cover, right, of being designed. It's so nicely tailored, right, um, that it could, you know, in fact, either do nothing or perhaps inflame existing inequities. Well, and it says a lot that as a quote unquote public private partnership, the, the, you know, the public part of it is the $1.1 billion. The, the, the private part of it is basically them, you know, everything. handing everything over and just saying, <laughs> okay, um, you're going to do this. You're going to be responsible for outreach. You're yeah. going to be responsible for, you're going to be the main interface as you usually are mm. between the, you know, patient and the pharmaceutical company to do the patient assistance program or whatever. You're going to be sort of, you know, in charge of managing all of that. We're going to just kind of like step back. And, mm -hmm. um, because we're not buying the vaccines anymore, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're just going to make sure that, uh, everyone's got their handshake here, that it's Pfizer and Moderna are going to do their patient assistance programs and the pharmacy is going to, you know, do this just fine. And then, uh, all problems will be covered up. No one's going to fall through these cracks, right? Certainly, certainly no one will fall through these cracks. And I think the ex exceptionally galling thing about this to me is that we do not look, have to look very hard at all to see that already this has been a problem at pharmacies. Um, and, you know, not even like we haven't even gotten to the May 11th date yet, which is next week, which, you know, I think even in this document, but in a lot of other documents in the um, there's a frequently asked questions page is like a fact on HHS's website now about COVID commercialization. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and it says like, well, vaccines will still be free after May 11th because the supply doesn't run out. Regardless of whether that's true, we've seen like people have been denied. People have gone to pharmacies and tried to get a COVID booster recently and posted about getting denied mm -hmm. by their insurance company not from like the pharmacy not you know whatever whatever it is whatever the reason was despite like whether it was even just a mistake or something because technically speaking the federal government is supposed to still pay for it like who the fuck knows but even if it was a mistake that doesn't say a lot for the future efficacy of this plan that they want to do mm -hmm. but just to I'll let me I mean I'll just read this tweet actually from from April 22nd someone on on Twitter wrote quote after the CDC issued new guidance on boosters this week I made an appointment to get another shot I thought I was eligible based on reporting I had read, but it turns out the reporting was inaccurate. My insurance wouldn't cover it on the basis of my chronic illness. 
But the whole thing just reminded me of how backwards everything is. We know that protection wanes over time, and yet boosters are not available to everyone who wants one. My insurance company would rather not pay for a booster, even when it could prevent more serious conditions. And that is just classic insurance company shit, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether Mm -hmm. this person was entitled to a free COVID vaccine, as the federal government claims, like, swears up and down, hand to God, that they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's fucking, it's fucking ridiculous. I mean, just categorically, like... A one-time payment does nothing for the working conditions of any of the people at these pharmacies. These reporting guidelines, all of this kind of public-private partnership, what this actually shows, especially in the broader context, right, which we have to remember, very little support for sick leave in the United States, if any, Um, Mm -hmm. very little actual OSHA guidance, especially for Mm -hmm. pharmacy workers. You know, pressure of putting sick people and well people, people seeking COVID, you know, treatment and people seeking COVID prevention in the form of vaccine in the same space with no mask mandates, right? So we're looking at like the bigger picture. Um, This is the perfect example of why the idea that we're going to be fucking saved by a a unique public-private partnership is laughable on this show and in the canon of death panel is a hilarious <laughs> statement to make to claim any public private partnership good is like an immediate laugh line amongst this crew. So like this is one of the reasons why it's so clear where the priority is, right? Is the priority in facilitating in the actual on the ground working conditions of an individual pharmacy located in the United States trying to provide these services the priority here? Absolutely fucking not. Is making sure that the pharmacy company that's going to be doing these data operations and doing this delivery for the federal government going to be compensated the priority here? Yes. And this is where we see the kind of idea of a public-private partnership, this fucking fundamentally broken proposal that we always see stood up here in the U.S. and that is a kind of infectious disease on our political economy, because what we've done here is we've said, okay, we've got to privatize COVID. So the way that we're doing this is not how do we make sure that people get what they need now that we're throwing this to the private market? It's how do we make it worth it for these Mm. private companies to do the fucking bare minimum that we're going to try and elbow them into doing? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we make it so that they are not mad at us for imposing this on them? How do we make it worth it for them to take this on? Not for the employees, not for the workers, not for the people who need the care, not for the people who need the vaccines, for the you know corporate structure that's going to take this on. And this is a way that we, we so frequently pass off things that are thought to be controversial to this kind of like decentralized model where you're like, oh, we're mm-hmm. just going to pass it out. We're just going to public private partnership our way out of this and it's going to be fine. And then when you actually look at the like, what's the nuts and bolts of what's being proposed in almost every one of these scenarios, it's immediately obvious, or it just takes a little tiny bit of digging and then it's obvious that the priority here is making a market and not the delivery Mm. of whatever service is supposed to be fulfilled. I mean, and this is really kind of where like the conceptualization for extractive abandonment that Artie and I build in health communism kind of comes from is like looking at relationships like this and saying, well, yes, this is a policy outcome and a policy design decision that results in bad things at the end of the line for people materially. But why? 
what is the thing that is actually sort of driving mm. why these ideas work out shitty materially on the people who have to use them and experience them, but why it's such an attractive policy solution that at the theoretical level is talked about as if it's this utopian panacea, right? Like this too you know, neoliberal Democrats, public-private partnerships are like the thing to do. This is a good thing to so they many are people. The state, in fact, yeah. And this is because it's a good thing to so many people because it's a way of meeting like a population level need while making sure that it still grows wealth for the fucking imperial nation. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's really something that that I think not enough people sort of understand when they see a proposal like this and they look at it and they're like, well, yeah, this is bad and this is going to sort of result in people not having what they need. But but really, the reason is why? Where are the priorities? What are the values embedded in the institutions that are being created here? What are the populations that are being targeted for abandonment in order for that money to be diverted for CVS to build up whatever data infrastructure it's going to need to comply with these CDC requests that they Mm -hmm. might receive for data that's going to be used to make the Biden administration look good? I mean, what the fuck? Right. Like this is really what we're what we're actually talking about here. It's being sold one way. It's being discussed in the media as one other thing, you know, but what is it actually? What is it materially? What is it going to be in terms of what people experience at the end of the line? You know, that is never the priority. It's Mm -hmm. can we make a market? Can we grow GDP? How can this need be met in a way that benefits economic growth? And if Mm -hmm. we meet the need too, good work, you know? Mission accomplished. But for the most part, meeting the need is just kind of a tertiary. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's right. a side effect. Exactly. You know. No, I'm so glad you said that because, of course, when we're you know reading the fact sheet from HHS, of course, you know our uh, you know it sort of trains our attention more on the rationale through which the state withdraws from any kind of investment in a public health approach that's actually public. But of course, that sort of ideological project is tied to actual purpose, right? This, yeah, I think you're so right that what we're seeing here is the sort of, you know, sketching out of the logic and infrastructure of a private market that is propped up by the public, uh, that is overseen by the state, uh, gatekept by the state, um, that is designed to ensure that people's experience not just of illness, but of the administrative burdens that we've been outlining, uh, that that experience, that hardship generates profit and moves money uh, between (laughs) private entities like large retail pharmacy chains and multinational drug corporations. That's really the kind of specific prescribed outcome here, uh, even though it's delivered in, in under the aegis of, of outlining a plan for giving, quote unquote, us, quote unquote, tools. Sorry, I'll stop <laughs> saying quote unquote, but I just, you know, it's like, again, the, the, the language really dresses up something that's pretty cold and calculated and gross, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. just, I don't know, it's it's a pretty, pretty depressing document. <laughs> it's a pretty yeah. depressing system. <laughs> well, and I think that's why maybe now is a good time to return to that thing that we brought up really early in the yeah. conversation, which is this, um, the, the, the public provision of these things of this essential public health tool 
you know, not sufficient to be the entirety of the COVID response. Like these were never a silver bullet, but alongside other mitigations like masking and other things, pretty fucking good compared to, you know, certainly compared to what we're living with now right. um, and what we will live with as we get uh, further and further into 2023 when, uh, whenever the stockpile of government purchased vaccines and Paxlovid actually runs out, you know, as we get further and further towards that anomalous date. But, you know, I, I think w- one thing I've been doing a lot recently, um, and I'm mostly trying to resist it actually, because I feel like, uh, you know, the, the thing happening next week, right? May 11th, the end of the public health emergency, that shit is fake, right? That is a, f- sorry, that is a fake date. Not to sound like, you know, all woo woo or conspiracy <laughs> or, or, or whatever, but I, I mean, I mean, on a, on a practical philosophical level, it's just like, I, I reject that date, right? I am not going to even, even in as much as I am and have been reflecting back on, you know, I posted on Twitter about re-listening to some of our old COVID coverage. I've been like thinking (sighs) a lot about the arc of the last three years, but Mm -hmm. I refuse to have it be like, oh, and this is, I refuse to let this be a date that is not fake a date that I'm just that I actually think of as because I, I don't think of next week as the end of the pandemic because it's fucking not right. right. But Mm-mm. so I in as much as I'm still refusing that date on just a, a philosophical basis, I do think that it has been very elucidating really to go back as I guess I frequently have over the course of, you know, researching for how liberals killed masking or COVID year three or whatever, but like looking back at some things And I think that one thing that I haven't talked about on the show yet as much, but I think is really appropriate for this conversation is I think it is very telling to look at, um, B mentioned, for instance, the, the press coverage that's happening right now of this stuff and how, uh, you know, let's take a favored punching bag, the New York times and how, (laughs) I mean, I think the New York times in their article about this, at least they had an article about this. I'll say that, um, because a lot of places didn't, which is fucked up, but it's almost um, like they were embarrassed by some of the criticism they received (laughs) and responded in a way that wasn't terrible. Mm -hmm. And that that's, totally a possible thing that they can and choose not to do in other circumstances just saying but so in the new york times article on this um they did quote someone from the kaiser family foundation saying that this was going to be a bad Mm -hmm. thing to just rely on the commitments of vaccine manufacturers the commitments the the uh you know pinky swear that pfizer and moderna were the big pharma um (laughs) and you know uh, so you know at least they included that but it's very telling i think to look at how um, it was covered even in the Times at its inception. So July 22nd mm. of 2020, for example, um, is when the Trump administration announced that they were going to that, you know, Operation Warp Speed um, or what, you know, whatever it was called. I think it was. Yeah, it was already called by then, by the time it was public Operation Warp Speed, although it used to go by the term uh, Manhattan Project 2. I know. I really um, wish they had but, gone with that. It would have been so fucking good because um, everyone loves uh <laughs> metaphorical corollary between a vaccine and a bomb that's just a good idea yeah i feel anyway, like only very <laughs> very deep death panel sickos who've been listening for a long time will remember <laughs> when we first discussed manhattan project 2 but um sorry not to beat around the bush too much basically if you look back at the coverage then so for example that day july 22nd 2020 for example like new york times vertical the upshot ran a headline that said the u.s commits to buying millions of vaccine doses why that's unusual Mm -hmm. and it spelled out you know how unusual it is within our i mean in in my in our terminology within our political economy of health but you know whatever it is that they said within the healthcare system of the u.s 
for the US to be doing this. And it's interesting because if you look around that time, there's a lot of conversation even in within the times that is about uh, we should probably it's kind of fucked up the vaccines that even vaccines, this public health thing that we're probably going to need to quote unquote, get back to normal are going to be part of the private market, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably a problem um, to the point that just, um, you know, a couple of weeks prior to that, July 6th, 2020, I'm going to read from another piece. Um, they ran, uh, the New York Times ran a piece that was a opinion piece called how a COVID-19 vaccine could cost Americans dearly with the subheader, the United States is the only developed nation unable to balance cost efficacy and social good in setting ah. prices. I disagree with this framing because, uh, whole lot of capitalist countries in the world and they all manage health poorly no matter what other people yes, say but that's true. a conversation for another time um so in this piece they start with saying um of course american's health is priceless and reigning in <laughs> which is hilarious actually oh God, but sorry. of course american's health is priceless and reigning in a deadly virus that has trashed the economy would be invaluable but a COVID-19 <laughs> vaccine will have an actual price tag. And given the prevailing business-centric model of American drug pricing, it could well be budget-breaking, perhaps making it unavailable to many. I remember when this discourse was happening. This was a serious thing that, yeah. that institutions like the Times were taking seriously. Uh, towards the end, they say, And it won't feel like a bargain if we get free or cheap vaccines during a pandemic, but pay dearly for annual COVID-19 shots thereafter. Okay, can we just unquote. pause? A lot of people message me constantly. Like, why are we rushing to end the pandemic? Like, what is going on? And mm. I never actually have a good answer for people because there is not one answer. But the thing that I always point to is exactly this. The anxiety of letting some of these free letting ways of accessing care or not having administrative burdens on Medicaid, not punishing poor people with like constant surveillance and demand for their time and documentation and making sure that they know just how fucking precarious that bare minimum assurance that maybe, you know, restricts them to only three medications per month that it'll pay for, that, that that's so tenuous, right? Yeah. That they're so at risk. That having that stuff paused for too long is such a risk. And and Jules, this is why I've always really appreciated your analysis and why it's been so fun having you on the show to talk about COVID with us more regularly is like the kind of anxiety of power could not sit with letting this mm -hmm. free shit last for too long. I mean, you let it last for too long and people won't let it. You take it away is like the number one maxim in, in politics and liberal, you know, democracy, so to speak. And so these people are so fucking anxious to to take mm. away free care because it fundamentally challenges why all the other care costs so much. And it's no mystery that this line of critique has disappeared from the New York Times, too. I mean, they literally, there's literally in this opinion piece from July 2020, okay, but what if it's free now, but not free for it being an annual booster later? Mm -hmm. Right, It's right there. And this is not the only, like, they didn't just, and when later in July, this was sort of cemented when they, when the, the government then announced that they were going to buy a bunch of vaccines and make them available for free to people. 
like you know bef- before we even had like the trials done um before we even knew whether they worked yet but then after that july 22nd date uh even in october they ran an opinion piece called capitalism is broken the fix begins with a free covid19 vaccine <laughs> It should not, I mean, it is not surprising to me that we're not seeing similar things in the Times and other similar, you know, media institutions at the moment, especially because everyone wants, I mean, fuck, if you read like the David Wallace Wells piece about COVID uh, in the Times about, you know, looking back at three years of COVID, he literally says, oh, you know, but it was probably, uh, people don't pay enough attention to vaccine hesitancy as the reason that COVID was so bad. Like, David, which, first I hope of all, who listening? the fuck are you talking about? What doesn't the fuck are you that. talking about? Yeah, David. Everyone fucking says that, including you now. Right. I know you it's read our writing. Like, said. You should know better than to try and pass that argument off, Mr. Wells. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, any, anyway, I'll shut up. But like this, it's, it is conspicuous to me, I guess, <laughs> that this was so obvious enough to be a, a headline, you know, a frontline issue in the moment and then to just sort of disappear and be completely off the table as we have to, you know, march, marshal consensus for normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I just, it just, again, I feel like one thing that's really standing out to me in this conversation that I appreciate that I feel like I have a much better understanding of kind of, you know, <laughs> moving along through these past couple of years with everyone um, is the way that, you know, the need to, to radically disavow <laughs> the possibility of genuine transformation of the world, you know, towards just a better version of it, um, you know, towards <laughs> something that's less, you know, sort of immiserated um, by the special relationship between the state and capital as it exists right now is actually in particular uh, this sort of <sighs> the rhetorical turn that that I find really painful um, and that I think actually you know, measuring the distance from the way things were covered a couple of years ago to how they're being covered now, there's, of course, all the technocratic deployment of pseudo-sociological <laughs> hypotheses like vaccine hesitancy and so on, and the kind of very liberal sort of like, well, it could have been a lot worse, Jules. Why are you being so difficult? Did you want more people to die? You're just, you, your your vision of a world where people, you know, don't get sick from preventable diseases uh, and where we actually, you know, have social safety nets and, you know, increase everyone's well-being together, you know, by, by leveraging what we know about solidarity um, or even state apparatus. Like, that's just silly. You're silly. You shouldn't, you shouldn't want that. But there's all of that. Yeah. But then, you know, the thing that really stands out to me about how this fact sheet and this HHS uh, declaration plays into this is the weaponization of this sort of neoliberal version of equity language to actually serve to damage the possibility of any widespread improvement in living conditions for everyone. This sort of actual weaponization in this case of the uninsured. Right. This population that is being greatly expanded right Mm -hmm. now due to this planned policy level organized abandonment that then you weaponize 
that group of people by, you know, making all of the policy rollout about improving access and improving equity, really targeting those, you know, those parts of the country, those rural areas using these, you know, public health infrastructures that we already have, like basically dressing up, right, the, the, the actual, you know, poison pill, right, that is going to affect everyone, although it will affect the uninsured, you know, the most, right, dressing that up, though, as equity, as this kind of neoliberal version of don't worry, we've actually designed a plan that's directly addressing, you know, the worst outcome in this entire landscape, precisely to ignore that the entire landscape of bad outcomes is a direct outcome of intentional policy, right? So it's just like, it's just to me, this kind of really disgusting um, sort of operation, not just of state rhetoric, but actually of using public-private partnership to outflank the possibility, right, of having the actual conversation and political reckoning that this pandemic brought up for everyone in such an obvious way that it even made it, right, into the New York Times temporarily. I mean, I just continue to think that that, you know, I know it's, I, I guess it just, you know, there are days that I'm like so embittered, um, like, wow, welcome to being me. But there are days I'm so embittered <laughs> about, um, about how quickly this sociological consensus was produced and implemented throughout the world, where now we have to pretend like, of course, there was never anything more we could do. Um, but in some ways, you know, I'm not really actually surprised by that, uh, because it seems to me the state is really designed to use crisis in this way. In fact, not just to respond to a crisis, right, using its pre-existing ideological bent, but actually to eventually, right, get a handle on regularizing, normalizing crisis, making crisis into something endemic, right? This would really be, I'm a little being a little, I'm philosophizing a little bit here in case it's helpful, but right, you know, to me, what's, what seems sort of interesting about this moment, right? Of course, we can, we can always point out that the transition from a pandemic to endemic is just this weird taxonomic, like epistemological distinction that, you know, doesn't have much backing it up, but, but the way the state and capital, right, they don't want to eliminate or remove crisis. And they don't want to use crises um, to improve the living conditions of everyone. They want to make crises as predictable and manageable as possible to extend and distribute suffering and immiseration and illness in a more planned way to facilitate, among other things, the movement of money and profit, right? And this is exactly what we're seeing in real time right now is these chickens are the ones that are coming home to roost, that the purpose of deploying the uninsured or the purpose of deploying the language of equity and access you know, as we've said so many times on this show, is precisely about uh, making sure that there's a permanent <laughs> crisis, that there's a permanent, um, you know, kind of pandemic, regardless of the mechanics of viral transmission, uh, although it obviously, you know, has something to do with that. But it just seems to me, I don't know, I just, I, I got really impassioned about it just because it always really bothers me when, you know, people who actually will suffer the most, uh, the most disproportionate outcomes under this planned regime are then basically held up as, as you know, are used as footballs to advance a kind of project that's about avoiding the fact that it didn't have to be this way. And that we all know that. We've all said that so many times. I mean, everyone came so close to or even like outlined that in 2020 or 2021 at different times. And so it's just it's just so wild that the, the way that we have to to disavow all of that in order to digest um, where we're at right now. But anyways, mm -hmm. and end of soapbox, but it just really, it really got me going. No, it's such a good soapbox though. And I, I really actually, 
I'm glad that this was such a flimsy, shitty document laid out by HHS, (laughs) but I'm also really glad that they made some really, really rookie mistakes here, you know, and especially in invoking the need to to worry about the administrative burdens of the pharmacies and no mention of the administrative burdens on the uninsured people that they're kicking off. I mean, this is stuff that's like, it's not readily visible if you don't know what what it is or what to look for or understand that something like an administrative burden is kind of a, a tool that is a policy tool that limits access to resources or services but does so without appearing to overtly be doing that. Like this is a kind of acute demobilizing policy intervention that can have tremendous impact on poor people's movements in particular. This is something we've talked about with Dean Spade extensively. Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend going back to any of the three times friend of the panel Dean has been on the show to talk about this because every time I talk to Dean, we always focus on this point of like the time that, it takes the energy, the psychological burden. I mean, these are talked about in terms of the costs of administrative burdens within even like the formal policy literature that tries to apply it to corporations in a way of like, oh, we really have to make sure these poor corporations aren't being regulated to the point of a a psychological burden. You know, these are the things that we kind of ascribe as the effects of an administrative burden. It's called like a learning cost, which is like the time it takes to actually figure out what you need to do, whether that's you know, having to fill out the paperwork yourself or find the service, or in the instance of corporations, them having the cost of having to hire someone who can make sure that they, you know, are compliant with the regulation. So when we we see this regulation kind of, when we see administrative burdens often talked about, it's really often in that register of like, oh, we have to deregulate businesses, we have to free up industry to be able to sort of operate at, at peak performance. But there's this whole other meaning to administrative burdens that actually applies to individuals in the ways that we use policy it, in a way to sort of promise things that we refuse to deliver, which is something we also talk about on the show all the time with regards to like things like access language. But really tangibly, this also is a kind of like time tax on people. It actually takes away energy that could be spent doing pandemic organizing, doing literally anything else with your life. <laughs> and this as mm-hmm. a kind of broad function is always concentrated most specifically on poor people. The poorer you are, the more administrative burdens you're going to have applied to your life. And so as a kind of counterinsurgent tactic, this is something that we really have to like consider because burdens Administrative burdens are really consequential and they make a huge difference in our lives. And they are going to fundamentally reshape the landscape of COVID tools over the next three years. And this is going to be the fight that we are reckoning with and we're sort of getting ready for. If you give a shit about COVID protections, like you are going to have to deal with the privatization of COVID in the coming years because this is, you know, what's happening in the United States and what's also, you know, at risk of happening in a bunch of other different countries. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that these ideas of like, you know, administrative burdens as being um, kind of like a necessary thing to make sure that we're just like documenting that that only people who need free vaccines are getting them. And we don't want to, you know, get involved in having too much waste and, and abuse of taxpayer funds and all this fraud potentially. So we have to be sort of restrictive, right? Like you never hear that applied to, uh, conversations about administrative burdens when it comes to like industry and businesses, right? We're never like, oh, you know, we got to uh, make sure that we're 
supervising for that kind of extraction and 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 fraud or whatever but this is always applied to the the space of like burdens especially when it comes to healthcare and fundamentally what we're seeing is even in the the earnings reports and documents from companies like Moderna and Pfizer who are manufacturing the vaccines mm. they're expecting the market to shrink you know they're expecting oh, yeah, of course yeah. Only a third of people in the United States to to buy vaccines um, in a year for the next couple of years. And and so this is not some sort of conspiracy or some sort of, um, you know, logical jump or, or inference that we're making here. We're just really saying very clearly, like this concept that is being implemented right now is a kind of way of hiding in plain sight a very overt political decision as if it is a structural need or requirement yeah. and you depoliticize it and you justify it and you create the conditions for the need to sort of control the scenario in such a way that you know at the end of the day we're probably going to end up having a couple stories eventually in, in the next couple of years that are like massive fraud and abuse of the, you know, patient assistance COVID vaccine program. Like mm -hmm. we will see that eventually because that's how the, the narrative around these things goes is because this is the way that we justify and provide the language for all sorts of systems of organized abandonment, which are really necessary to stand up in the face of something that might be a challenge to the status quo, like the ongoing free availability of COVID vaccines and therapeutics, right? That challenges like a multi-billion dollar global healthcare mm. industry um, and their entire sort of mode of profit. So of course it's a priority to end at all costs. And it's not so much about sort of like our individual actors necessarily, um, you know, pushing this along. This has nothing to do with like the personality of like the people in charge, but everything to do with the fact that our political economy requires anyone in charge to make this kind of move. Mm. So well said. I think that's a good place to leave it. Probably. Yeah. If you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we'll catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week in the main feed. The day the public health emergency ends. Fuck. Mm. But it's still hard to say. <laughs> um, as always, but especially this week, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. <laughs>